Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, podcast listeners. Today, we have a fantastic guest. Early in his career, he helped build an online brokerage operations for a major U.S. bank from five to 300 people. He then helped run operations for a large hedge fund before founding Sundial Capital Research. It's been mentioned in all the publications you know, Journal, Bloomy, Barron's, Economist, all that good stuff. He's uh, also the president and CEO of Sentiment Trader, which is a research firm dedicated to the application of mass psychology to the financial markets. Welcome to the show, Jason Geffert. Thanks, Matt. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, so I think you're dialing in from somewhere in the Great White North. Is that right? Yeah, just outside of Minneapolis. We're actually due to get snow here in the next couple of days. So a little bit earlier than usual, but the season's starting. Well, we're in Los Angeles where they just had the first 100-degree World Series game. So I think we're, we're sweating it out here, but we're, we're, in the, we're in the air-conditioned studio, or what we like to call the studio is really our conference room with a couple of microphones. I was here in 1991 when, we had the, when the Twins were actually in the World Series the last time, and the, the day after the World Series ended, we had, a, we had a major blizzard. I think we got over a foot and a half of snow in downtown Minneapolis. Oh my so, gosh. Uh, crazy extremes. That was such a fun World Series. Hopefully this one will be exciting. Although it's the ticket prices were really ridiculous. I was I was hoping to slide into some sort of ticket somewhere, but um but it's crazy. Not 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 surprising being Los Angeles. Anyway, we'll see. Hopefully they come back to the final series in LA and we get to go. Anyway, all right. So let's jump yeah. in. Why don't you give us a little background context? You know, you, you've started a few firms, but how you kind of got to where you are today. And then we'll really start to dive in on, on a lot of the, I got a lot of questions for you today we want to chat about, but just give us, give us kind of a quick overview of how you got to where you are. Well, I grew up in the Northwoods of Wisconsin, so not too far from here. Spent my summers basically scraping cow dung off of barn walls in the winters, cutting logs. So realized pretty quickly when I was a kid, I did not want to do that for my living. Our family had done that for, for generations. So that was kind of in the cards for me. And my dad didn't want me to do it. I didn't want to do it. So they kind of really pushed me to, to do well in school. So pushed hard, went to school for finance and economics, enjoyed it. It, was, uh, it really kind of fit with where my interests were. So soon after that, got hooked in with Wells Fargo. They had um, a couple of different brokerage units. One was their quote-unquote online brokerage unit, but it was basically just a discount broker at that time. So I started with them literally in the mailroom. And I think we had, I think there were five or six people total then. We hit it just kind of as the markets were taking off. Online brokerage was becoming huge, the mid-90s there. So we hit it perfectly. And and so by the time I left, there were over 300 in the unit. So that was great for me because I got to see every piece of the business from the mailroom to management. So learned all parts of it, which is a fantastic experience. And one of the things that really developed quickly for me was 
being able to see part of my responsibilities was the margin and option unit. So I got to see applications coming in, got to see our staff making margin calls for compliance reasons. I had to listen to every call. And if you want ever want to <laughs> see emotion in the market, if you have the chance, go to a brokerage unit and, and sit in on some of the margin calls when the market's moving. There you will see emotion. What sort of emotion? Is it, is it anger? Is it sadness? Is it resentment? Is it panic? What's the, what was the usual kind of feedback? It is anger and panic. Our margin clerks will get yelled at a lot. And the thing I try to stress is they're not angry at you. They just, you're the person they can take it out on. They can't call up Qualcomm and, and start complaining that, you know, their stock is dropping. Uh, I'm sure some do, but so we're the person that's facing the customer and, and they just, you know, that's who they're going to take it out on. So a lot of that was just frustration with trying to come up with money or de- deciding, you know, if they, if they should sell or just what they need to do. And often, you know, these were very quick decisions they had to make because they had maybe a few hours before we would sell out their account. So, you know, you're, you're adding leverage on top of time pressure, and that's just really combustible. So the, the thing that really stuck out to me there was, you know, I, was, I went to school for finance and economics. I was taught that people are rational. And that was my first experience firsthand with knowledge that people are not rational, at least not all people. And so that really triggered my interest in learning more about kind of the sentiment part of it, just the emotional part of it. So from there, I just started developing some indicators in-house based on, you know, our application flow, how many people were applying for option accounts, how many people were covering their margin calls versus selling out, and just kind of put together this little newsletter type thing just in-house for trading buddies that, that were working there. And that was kind of the, I guess, the genesis of, of Sentiment Trader, but just kind of kept doing that until this was the, the very late 90s, early 2000. Felt like I kind of had learned all I was going to learn there and jumped over to a hedge fund, realized quickly that there wasn't really anything different there. It was basically the same stuff. There was still office politics, which I absolutely detest. So left from there and went out on my own. And because I didn't have access to the same data that I had at Wells Fargo or at the hedge fund, I was trying to find a place where I could get some of the sentiment data. You know, the NYSE has some available, the SIBO has some available, but I just, I couldn't find one place where it was just all together. So spent $19 with Yahoo. Yahoo had this e-commerce package at the time where you could create a website for $19. So I did that. Uh, I just threw up this ugly website that was bare bones and horrific now that I look back at it. And just kind of put some of this data together that I found online and just aggregate it into one place and didn't really do anything with it. Just kind of had it out there for my own use and a couple of trading buddies. And then somebody hit subscribed. I got an email that there was a, a subscriber and I was just like, okay, I didn't really do anything and somebody's somebody's paying for this. So that kind of got the bell ringing that maybe there's something to this. And so just kind of pushed a little bit harder and got a few more subscribers. And one of the columnists from the street.com, Gary Smith, had mentioned the site. And overnight, we got 300 subscribers. And I was doing everything manually at that point. Every subscriber was in a spreadsheet. Every time there was a monthly billing, they would do it. I would have to do it manually. And so I didn't sleep for days because I was trying to get all of this stuff processed. And it was just, it was just kind of a crazy time. But that was kind of the kickoff to the whole thing that there is a, an interest in this, that it's a niche that people are interested in, perhaps need. There isn't really a, a really good source that aggregates that on the web and and just kind of took it from there. So just kind of been building it since then. And a few years ago, I took on a partner, Eric Brown, who's got a doctorate in information systems. And he's just been, it, I mean, that was just the best decision because 
he's got all these skills that I don't have and has been able to build out some great tools like a backtest engine and all the stuff that in a thousand years I wouldn't be able to do. Was Gary was Gary Smith the technical analysis writer? I'm trying to remember at the street. Yes. Okay. Yeah, and yeah, he was there for a long time, and then he he started on Bulls and Bears on Fox Business, and I'm I'm actually not sure if he's still there, but he was their main technical analysis guy. I, I used to I used to read his stuff religiously back uh, back in the day. Oh man, twenty years ago or whenever it might have been. Interesting. We'll, we'll have to follow up later on that. Okay, so uh, let's jump in because I got a lot I want to ask you today. I was reading you know one of the descriptions on Sentiment Trader on the website, and I think it's a, a pretty good overview. So I may use this as a jumping off point. So Sundial Capital Research is an independent investment research firm dedicated to the application of mass psychology to the financial markets. Publishes a sentiment trader website. It focuses not on market timing per se, but rather risk management. This may be a distinction without a difference, but it's how we approach the markets. We study signs that suggest it's time to raise or lower market exposure as a function of risk relative to possible reward. It's all about risk-adjusted expectations given existing evidence. So why don't you use this as a jumping off point? Tell us a little bit about sentiment trader, how it works, and just kind of your framework for thinking about sentiment in general. And then we'll start to um, you know get into a little more a little more specifics. Basically, it comes down to trend and sentiment. Trend is most important, so that that always gets the most respect. Clearly, you know, st- stocks, for example, stocks are in an uptrend. So we try to respect that, even if we're seeing an optimistic extreme in sentiment. It's usually not a good idea to just go short just because there's sentiment extremes. So there's always a balance between the two. Uh, momentum is part of that as well. Other markets aren't quite as clear cut because they're not typically as trendy. Currencies are, are maybe an exception, but a lot of markets are quite a bit more, more choppy. So using trend is a little bit more difficult than something like commodities or maybe, maybe crude oil. They tend to chop around a lot more. So sentiment tends to be more effective or more consistent anyway in a market like that. So it depends on the market. It would be nice if there was just one, you know, one indicator we could all use, one set of rules that we could all use, and that would help us outperform. But that's just markets aren't easy. That, that doesn't happen. So, so, I mean, that's the base of it is respect the trend. When sentiment hits an extreme, pay attention. And when the market doesn't do what they should after that extreme, then you should really pay attention because failures can tell us a lot. And people tend to just kind of ignore them. So that, that's an interesting point. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. You know, I think a lot of people, when they think of sentiment, they think about, you know, the cover of the magazine indicator, the cover of a magazine, or perhaps cocktail party chatter, you know, where everyone's talking about a particular investment or, you know, how smart they are, how much money they're making or, or, or vice versa on the on the downside. So talking about your models in general, before we get to some specifics, are these geared towards more intraday traders or is it long-term kind of tactical asset allocators? And what's what's kind of the time frame? Is it, um, you know, short? Is it yearly stuff? Or is it kind of a little bit of both? It's a little bit of both. We, we have indicators that are updated from anywhere from 15 minutes, every 15 minutes up to every quarter. So there's a wide range there, but the vast majority are focused on what we would call the medium term, which is one to three months. For some people, that's you know long term. For, for other people, that's super short term. So, I mean, it all depends on your perspective. But for us, for a lot of the indicators that we follow, a lot of the indicators that people are familiar with, the most effective time frame is somewhere in that one to three month time frame. It varies depending on the market. You know, some markets move fast, some some slow, but most of them are are geared to that time frame. I know the answer to this is is going to be certainly not, but a lot of people. One of the challenges with sentiment is that 
you know, a lot of people just want one indicator and they would say, all right, well, this is my sentiment indicator, but I'm, I'm, I'm guessing it's somewhat of a mosaic approach where some are used, are kind of coincident and just used for interest. Some are probably much more specific. Maybe give us an example of just, a, you know, one of your generic favorite indicators and kind of talk a little bit about it. Um, and, and maybe also a little bit about that, what you just mentioned, which was, you know, the ability for it to be wrong too, and, and what failure may mean, if that's a de- decent jumping off point for you. Yeah, well, if I had to pick one indicator, at this point right now, I would probably pick the term structure of the VIX. So just looking at the price. Oh, wow. Of the All VIX. right. You're getting complicated right from the get go. All right. Well, explain, explain, <laughs> explain to the, the listeners what that means. Yeah. So it's just, it looks at the price of the VIX, the various VIX futures contracts. And the VIX is what's commonly called the, the fear gauge. It's implied volatility for S&P 500 options over the next 30 days. Most of your listeners are probably familiar with it. And I mean, that's just a good way to think of it is the fear gauge. Maybe that's not perfectly accurate, but that's a good way to think of it. When people are fearful, they bid up put options, the VIX spikes. When people are relatively complacent, the VIX is low. That's not always the case. There's a very high correlation or inverse correlation to the S&P 500, but there is some additional information there. And so by looking at the price of the different VIX futures contracts from the near term to the medium term, we can kind of get a, a sense of just how panicked people are. So when the near month of VIX spikes higher, and we're not really seeing that further out, typically it's a, it's a sign that people are panicked right now. And that's been a, a, a real good sign that prices are, are near a, a short-term bottom, at least. Vice versa, to some extent, tops are always more difficult than, than bottoms are, or usually anyway. But if I had to pick one, that's been probably the most consistent one over the past few years where if the indicator reaches an extreme, typically the market's at one turning point or another. And so what's that saying right now? You know, I think we've seen a lot in the media about volatility being really low. And, and honestly, it, it probably at some pretty, pretty low extremes, I would think. is well, what's, what's your interpretation on the way it looks right now? Yeah, it is low. It's been low for much of 2017. So whenever that happens, people say, well, see, you know, it doesn't work. Well, you know, nothing works 100% of the time. Fundamental analysis doesn't work 100% of the time. So you're never going to get anything that's always perfect. So it has had some failures this year. It is more of a shorter to medium term indicator. So I wouldn't say the failures were that bad, but they were there. And recently in the past couple of weeks, it, it did register an extremely low reading meaning that people were very, very confident. There was not much fear that there was going to be an imminent correction. So we're, we're starting to see that correct a little bit now, especially today. But yeah, it, it was recently at a, a pretty complacent extreme. You know, it's, it's funny as we think about it. I mean, I, 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 this makes me recall great reminiscences of Stock Operator. The, the newest edition a couple of years ago had an intro or an epilogue written by Paul Tudor Jones, famous macro trader. And he talked a lot about if he had to pick just one indicator, you know, his basis was the 200-day moving average, which is kind of astonishing to hear, you know, from this multi-billion dollar fund manager that, that goes back to using something so simple that's probably the most famous trend indicator. And so talking about what you just mentioned earlier, we said respect the trend, you know, we're in an up market in the US, but at the same time, start to realize that we're having some extremes on volatility. For example, some of the lowest, I think, on a couple of measures, October until today was some of the, the lowest volatility month and some of the lowest volatility readings ever. But you can often see volatility just bump along the bottom until until the event happens. And then it, it for perspective investors, I think the average VIX rating 
is probably around, is it probably around 20? Am I right in that? Or is it closer to like 15? Uh, it's upper teens. Upper teens. Okay. So right ballpark, but it can spike to the fear is really what, like 40? Yeah. For yeah. panic. Once it gets past 30, it's a pretty good sign of fear. And, and then it's kind of unlimited ceiling after that. You know, you go up to the 1987 and estimate it's, it gets all the way up to 80 plus 100. But it's interesting because a lot of people say, oh, my God, this is the lowest volatility day ever. It, it doesn't mean that it has to crash or that it has to revert. It's just it's a sign, that, a sign of the times. And so, you know, for a lot of long-term investors, is this something that they even need to look at? Or could they, you know, just ignore it? Or what, what's kind of your, your perspective on you know, how robotic using these are? Like, are you actually implementing these with kind of rules-based approaches or you, is it more kind of using it for color? I use it for color. Um, I don't do anything systematically, which, you know, is, is to our detriment at times, but I, I do think judgment has a place. I think discretion has a place, especially when it comes to sentiment. The rise of these quant funds that just trade purely on price action or or whatever metric are a little bit scary because they can't react. And in fact, there was just something in Forbes about 320-somethings that have $10 million under management, and they're trading a, a billion dollars a day. And that wasn't all in NYSE stocks, but that would be about 2.5% of daily NYSE volume. And these guys, they had one, they had one year of trading experience, and they were, they're turning over that much stock. That bugs me. That, that worries me. The experience is not there. The safeguards aren't there. And I, you know, 1987, I have no idea if something like that is going to happen again. I would not be surprised at all to see a, a multi-day 5 to 15% decline, in part because there's too much uh, mechanical going on in the market. There's not enough discretion. It's not like the old days with the four traders. And I think that's going to end, end badly uh, temporarily. But that does not mean, you know, a huge bear market. It doesn't mean anything besides there's probably at some point going to be a major scare where people have to readjust their thinking on, on some of the stuff that's been going on based on an extremely calm market over the past, really, you know, eight years. We're going to come back to this later when we talk about crypto, but there was a great stat that the there's been like 100 crypto funds, hedge funds, and the average age of the crypto managers is 20, I think it's 24 or 25. So it was an interesting, interesting sign of the times. Um, but speaking of kind of, color a little bit. You know, I, I was, I read a newsletter writer, a friend of ours we've had on the podcast named Jared Dillian, who writes the Daily Dirt Nap. And he humorously wrote a piece the other day about kind of things you see in bull markets. And he said, you know, you go to a restaurant and you notice it's really loud and bustling. Whereas in bear markets, people tend to be a lot quieter and, you know, the conversations are much more hushed. And so I, I went to dinner. I filmed a, a market watch panel in Beverly Hills and went out to dinner with the hosts afterwards. And, and, and Jared, I forgot to mention, said of this bull market, he said one of the big signs is the restaurant. You go to a seafood restaurants, the seafood tower, which he says is like one of the worst possible probably things to order because <laughs> it's super expensive and you don't get that much, but it's just a sign. It's very ostentatious. It's kind of like, you know, getting the champagne at a lounge where they come out with sparklers or something. And so you, but sure. I was laughing because not only did my table order one and meanwhile it was delicious. I love everything in a seafood tower as long as I'm not paying, but I saw three other in the restaurant. So that, that's a little bit of a, you know, coincident indicator of the bull market, which I thought was funny and, and relevant. But wow. that's one of the things, you know, as you see a lot of the sentiment stuff tends to correlate, meaning, 
you know, a lot of it tends to happen at the same time where you see these signs and echoes and, you know, you mentioned that the volatility is really low. Well, often that will coincide with, you know, an uptrend and a long pull market and also people starting to get giddy. Talk to me a little bit about some of the bullish sentiment surveys and, you know, on your thoughts, I know there's a couple big ones. There's AAII, there's investors intelligence. What are kind of like, what's your thought on these surveys in general? Are they helpful? Are they useful? Are they misleading? What's, what's the general thoughts there, particularly with regard to, you know, equities positioning? I find them useful. They're mostly coincident, but that doesn't mean they can't be useful because typically they're bounded. So fewer than zero people can't be bullish and more than 100% can't be bullish. So there is some, some use to that once we reach one of these upper or lower bounds uh, where stock prices you know, are not necessarily bound. And usually that's a, that's a helpful feature. So I do find them useful. They all have their uses. Um, investors intelligence is, is probably the most useful. If I had to pick one, I would I'd probably pick that one. But market vein consensus, you know, a lot of these services have um, sentiment surveys that are, that are useful. Even some of the monthly surveys from the conference board or University of Michigan, they all pretty much track the same, uh, maybe on different timeframes, but they typically go up and down together. Um, the AAI survey, American Association of Individual Investors, that's probably the most popular one. And I'm, I'm not exactly sure why. I think, you know, we follow it, but it carries no weight in any of our models. It's, um, there are several issues with it. And Besides the fact that it's just become really popular, which I think is with some of these sentiment surveys, because it's what people are saying. It's not necessarily what they're doing with their money. And I think there's some observer effect that goes on with some of this. So, you know, these, these people that are members of AAII, they're market participants. I think they're, some of them are fairly active. They see out there that they're a contrary indicator, that if they say they're bullish, that, you know, maybe stocks won't go up then because, you know, people are using it as a contrary indicator. So maybe the next time they take the survey, well, they'll say they're not so bullish. They'll say they're, you know, neutral or, or bearish. So I think there's been some impact on the survey because of that reason. I think we're seeing that with some other indicators as well, like the RIDEX family of mutual funds. That became a very popular sentiment indicator probably 10 years ago. Well, people became more aware of it, including the people that actually trade the RIDEX funds. So they changed their behavior. So I, I think that's a real danger with, with some of these indicators, especially the ones with you know smaller sample size. AAII probably has 150 to 300 people in their surveys. The other issue with it is it, it skews older. So if you plot the AAII survey against consumer confidence of those 55 and older versus those 35 and younger, there's a really high correlation there. So part of the reason the, the survey is very low it seems like people aren't very bullish. It's just because, you know, perhaps people who are older are not very bullish. They're just grumpy, middle-aged. Grumpy yeah, old exactly. people. <laughs> grumpy old people. <laughs> so a lot of what we're seeing in the media right now is saying, well, sentiment isn't elevated right now. There's no optimism. People hate this bull market. This citing this AI survey, I think, is really misleading, and it's uh, kind of a disservice. Well, there's two comments I'll make on the AI and investors' intelligence. I mean, the AI, at least it got... I think one reason people like it is it has a long history you can download, so people can go look at the numbers. But it sure. did at least get the, the turns right. I mean, I think the highest bullish reading it ever had was in like January 2000. And I think the least 
bullish was in March 2009. You know, so these, at least it got the extremes right. But the best interpretation I've ever seen of the investor's intelligence was Luthold, which I think is kind of near you guys. They did an average of the sentiment over the course of the year and then looked how the performance of stocks did the following year and found that, not surprisingly, the 10 highest sentiment years had terrible stock performance the next year. I think it was around zero. And then the 10 lowest sentiment years had great stock returns the following year, which I thought was a pretty interesting application that I hadn't really seen. But it just goes to show that a lot of these surveys, they spend a lot of time in kind of in the middle that's not that useful. And really, for a lot of the sentiment stuff, it's only at these big extremes where you know, it, it really is the is the good signal. For the most part, yeah. And this, the AAI survey is is interesting because you're exactly right. And it did mark those two extremes in the market, one high and one low. Most of the time it does not. So at the 2007 peak, bullishness was, was not very high. It was in the middle of, the, of its range, right as the market was peaking. Optimism was much less than it was even a couple of years higher. So all through 2004 up to 2007, you saw this constantly declining peak in bullishness among this, this population, which is what we've seen over the past few years as well. So the survey did not nail the top in 2007. It did not nail the top in 1998 or 1994 or 1990. So using it as the end-all be-all of sentiment, I think, is really sketchy because it doesn't often give a generational high or low. Most of the time, it's either in the middle or diverges from price, which I think can also provide some information. Well, I mean, you talk about this too. I've heard you speak that, and we talk a lot about this with valuations and constituent complexity, is that every cycle is different. You know, and, and you mentioned like 2007 looks different than 2000, and there's a lot of reasons why. And I think you had a comment, something along the lines of, it's always going to be different, so don't fight the last battle. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that and how the history may rhyme, but not necessarily be the, be the same. And you got to kind of keep an open mind about what might be the, the next driver and the next sign of the next, the next good and bad time. Well, yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of behavioral biases that are geared to that, you know, recency bias and availability bias and, and all of these that are, that tell us that we shouldn't put all of our weight on the thing that just happened, but that's what we all tend to do. You know, we look at the VIX while the VIX is priced supposed, supposed to be on future volatility but it has an exceptionally high correlation to historical volatility. So people are pricing in the future based on what it just looked like in the past. And we see that, we see that a lot with indicators and, and with markets. So right now people are saying, well, you know, stocks probably aren't going to peak because we're not seeing the kind of optimism that we saw in 2007. Well, <laughs> no, but 2007 was probably a once in a lifetime kind of a, kind of a peak. 2009 was a once-in-a-lifetime once kind of a bottom. So you're not going to see the same kinds of readings that you saw at, at those turning points. There are a lot of different bear markets throughout history. You know, there's 25, 30 of them, and each one of them looks different. Each of the bull markets looks different. They're all different lengths. They're all different magnitudes. And so that's one of the big challenges is nothing ever looks like it did in the past. Uh, you might get something that rhymes a little bit, but mostly it's, it's going to be something different. And you look at this cycle – and you look at the influence of, you know, you've got now the passive versus, versus active flow. You've got all of this private equity money that's distorting some of these indicators. You know, look at the number of IPOs. People are saying, well, you know, we're not seeing giddiness right now because we're not seeing this big surge in IPOs like we did in 2000. Well, no, that's because they don't have to have an IPO. There's all this private equity money. 
So if you're looking for that indicator, you're not going to see it. You're probably not going to see it for years, if, if, if ever, because these are not going to go public. So you know, each time is different. You have to use a little bit of judgment and just kind of take a, a weight of the evidence approach and see if it adds up. Interesting. And it kind of goes back to thinking of, of everything as a mosaic. Talk to me. So we, we have a little website we love to use called Favestar that lets you rank someone's all-time most popular tweets. So I'll read a couple of yours in a minute. But talk to me about Twitter in general. Is that something that, you know, is, a, is kind of a new entrant? Is that something that's useful, you think, uh, as a sentiment indicator? Or is it something we should maybe be a little, a little cautious about? Twitter is a wonderful, horrible thing. It can be the best tool out there in terms of real-time collaboration with people that you would never be able to collaborate with otherwise. And it also attracts kind of the dregs of human society. If you, if you go and look at the comments of almost any tweet, you just kind of want to give up on everything. So it's, it's useful kind of as a, as a broadcast mechanism. It's becoming more difficult to use as a collaboration tool. And I think using it as a talent sentiment is, is really dangerous because we self-select our Twitter universe. We, we determine who we're going to follow. And we tend to kind of follow the people with a similar mentality as us. So, you know, if we're generally optimistic, typically we're going to follow people who are optimistic. And so there, if, you, if you use their Twitter stream as a rate on sentiment, well, that's really skewed because you're basically just seeing optimistic people and vice versa. Uh, vice versa is probably even, you know, kind of the, the zero hedge community, I think, is, is even more dangerous. But so trying to, to read sentiment based on this self-selected sample is, is just fraught with risk. I think there's, there's more interest and more use in having kind of some kind of a machine learning algorithm that, that learns sentiment on Twitter, uses the language of tweets. In fact, my partner, Eric Brown, did his doctorate on that. And that, that can be useful, especially on individual stocks, some sectors, and even kind of the broader ETFs. But again, you know, there are funds that have been developed to trade based off Twitter sentiment or stock tweets sentiment. And they've really struggled because... <laughs> It's the game theory thing. Well, if these other funds see this fund performing well, they, maybe they're going to populate Twitter with some fake tweets, which is super easy to do. So even using it in a quantified manner, I, I, I think, is, is really challenging. There is something there. It's hard to use. I think there's a lot of insight there where you know, most of the listeners can relate to even the election you know, and everything that's gone on in the past year Absolutely. and talk where a lot of people use Facebook and they have this echo chamber of following other people that are in their own universe. And so they, they live in this bubble of whether it's political views or religious views or market views, it, it would actually be interesting to try to combine maybe 10 or 20 of the biggest like perma bears personalities on Twitter, and then maybe 10 or 20 of the biggest like perma bulls. And then and maybe you could talk to your partner about this and then get them to like, say, study. All right, we're going to do a word cloud of the, you know, all the people they follow or that follow them and then all the word cloud of all the people that are the permables or study. And, and you see, I'm sure you'd see just a totally different conclusion. And that's the hard part about listening to, to market news in general is like, I'll, I'll find my sentence why I'm a quant is I'll find myself reading a research report. I just read one the other night that we're sending out to the idea farm. And I spent the entire time thinking, Oh my God, the conclusion is, you have to sell everything and buy a bunch of puts, <laughs> you know, like, like that's the emotion I felt. And thankfully I'm a quant again, but so, so I don't have to worry about it, but, but you can see why people who consistently get that drip IV drip of good or bad news or whatever that just reinforces it. It's tough. Um, you had a great example. It's actually one of your most popular tweets was 
you said this was um, a funny one. It says this is likely incomplete, but you said it's been a, it's paid to be a buyer when CNBC pulls out it markets in turmoil feature. <laughs> Do you remember that tweet? Yeah, that's it's uh, it, and they they've kind of stopped doing it after that. And I had kind of a little <laughs> a little tip with some of their producers that were saying, well, you you omitted some of the some of our specials, and I said, well, so send me the dates, please, because I went through their feed, I went through their Facebook accounts of all of their personalities, and I, I'm fairly certain I've got all of the dates that they ran one of these specials. And invariably, they ran it you know, after the market declined a few percent. Well, partially, this is, just works because it was a bull market, but almost invariably, when they ran one of these specials, the market turned around that day or, or day or two later. So you know, we're seeing something now with, with President Trump. He very much loves to tweet after the Dow just hit a new high, after you know, it's been on the news. His, his buddies at Fox News are giddy about it, and so he'll tweet a screenshot. Well, the, there's a pretty high correlation between the volume of his tweets and future market performance, even though it's been a, a short time period. But even if you look at just the average return, I, I think the most consistent was four days later. There's a stark difference between when, how the market performs after he tweets about the stock market and when he doesn't. It performs much better after he doesn't tweet. So you know, some of the stuff is, is just kind of for fun and you can't really necessarily use it for, uh, especially for investments, but maybe even for trading. Uh, but, you know, it, like you said about a mosaic, it all kind of comes together and gives you a bigger picture of the overriding sentiment out there. That's really funny to talk about Trump tweets because I don't really bet on sports or anything else, prediction markets. But when the Mayweather-McGregor fight came along, I had done a quant study. I was, I was joking with friends. I said, here's all the prop bets. You know, how long is the national anthem? Who's gonna? Who's gonna? You know, wins the fight can end. And there was a prop bet on how many times would Trump tweet during the day of the fight, and it was at six and a half. And I went and studied the, his last like six months of tweets and found that his average tweets per day were twelve. And then on top of that, they included the POTUS account, and so I said, "This is an amazing bet." The for whatever reason, <laughs> the sports book isn't accounting for how many times he's going to tweet. And then on top of that, and this is if like you're a good fundamental stock analyst, you say, okay, what does the market know? What is the market not accounting for? Well, this was also the weekend that the hurricane was coming into Houston. And so I said, Uh, oh my God, he's going to tweet 500 times and I'm going to bet everything I have on this. You know, of course I'm not because one, Vegas won't take the prop bets on this and if they do, they max out like a hundred bucks. And so then I was using one of my friend's online sports books because, of course, I would never use an online sports book. But no, of course. one of my friend's online sports books. And then you can't bet that much then because it's probably located in, you know, Aruba and then it's going to disappear into the ether. So I, I bet. And of course, what happens? Trump tweets like five times and then just goes dark <laughs> and then just doesn't tweet. He goes to bed early, I guess. And although. <laughs> The POTUS account retweeted like 10 tweets. And so I, I of course, was like, hey, this, according to Twitter's terms of service, a, a tweet that's been shared is called a retweet. So I'm right. like, this is a tweet. And then, of course, you know what happens. He, he wakes up the next morning and literally tweets like 75 times. Um, <laughs> but it's such a great example of, you know, sure things and markets and bets and, you know, why, why I'm a quant. That fight is, is the best example of sentiment I've ever seen because... I think it was the, the day before the fight. I'm not sure if it was ESPN or, or what, what service had it on, but they had a, a bar graph of the number of bets on Mayweather versus McGregor, each one, versus the dollar amount bet on each one. And I forget the proportions, but the vast majority of bets, the number of bets, were placed on McGregor. 
the vast majority of money was bet on Mayweather. So you saw basically a few large smart money people betting everything on Mayweather and, you know, the hoi poi betting on, on McGregor. The bet size was like $100 on McGregor and like $100,000 on Mayweather. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So when you're looking at the difference between smart money and, and dumb money, there, there's in my entire career, I've never seen a more stark divergence than the betting on that fight. And meanwhile, Meb is just sitting here. So I, I set up alerts on my phone for Trump tweets, which I haven't turned off yet. So I, I still got to go. That reminds me to go turn that off because I get alerts all day long on these insane yeah. tweets. All right, let's go back to let's go back to markets, um, investment markets. I'm going to bounce around a little bit. You guys do anything with margin levels or commitment to traders at all? Yeah, both. Um, margin is, eh, I mean, it's it's fine. We track it, but. There's typically not much information there. It goes higher when stocks go higher and goes lower when stocks go lower. So to me, the, the most use I've seen with it is looking at the rate of growth in margin debt versus the rate of growth in an index. We use the S&P, but it doesn't really matter. So what you saw in 2000 and 2007 was you saw this huge growth in margin debt over and above what could be, I guess, rational versus the growth in stocks. So we haven't seen that even even to a close extent since then. So, you know, when you, when you see, or the idea that we're not seeing excessive optimism, that would be one example of it, just that we're not seeing the rate of growth in margin debt that we saw in 2000 or 2007 relative to what would be rational. So there is some use, use to it, but the vast majority of time, it's just does what it's expected to do. And yeah, the level is high. There's not much cash in these accounts. So when you look at kind of a, a net worth figure, take the cash balances from the margin debt. It's hugely negative, even when you put that in relation to market cap. But historically, that's not a great indicator. It wouldn't necessarily have gotten you out in 2000 or 2007. And prior to that, in the prior decades, it was, it was really random. I mean, it was basically useless. So that's one of those indicators, again, that's pretty popular. The media likes to cite it. Fear mongers like to say, well, debt's at all-time levels. That's all true, but I don't think it's that useful. What are some other popular ones that you think are just kind of bonk or that you think that the media loves that's, that's really just kind of, kind of worthless? You'd mentioned magazine cover indicator earlier. That's one, too, that every time people see a cover, they think, well, you got to take the other side of that. <laughs> it's just Markets are not that easy. It's that easy. Um, I did a – I'm sure this has been done before, but I did a study of every Barron's cover – I don't know how far back I went, as far as I could, years and years and years. And it was mostly a non-contrary indicator. I think their success rate was, it was between 50 and 60%. It was, it was fine. So the market typically did what they thought it was going to do when they put it on their cover. The only one that I've, that I've seen that's really convincing is the Economist cover. And to their credit, they actually ran a story in the Economist about how their own covers were contrary indicators. They had supplied a historical feed of their covers to a couple of researchers, academic researchers. They studied the markets over various time frames, and they found that it is actually a pretty effective contrary indicator over the next year. So, again, it's, it's one of those things that's, that's pretty popular. You hear a lot about mostly it's useless. But there are a few isolated examples where it can it can really help. All right, I'm gonna, so I'm now going to ask you about kind of how the world looks today, and we're going to bounce around to a few different asset classes, and we'll see if you have any thoughts on sentiment on these. And and for a lot of them, it probably the answer probably may just be, you know, meh, where there's nothing going on. But let's start with the biggie, U.S. equities. What what kind of a lot of the indicators say now? What's what's your suggestions on 
the positioning as far as length of this bull and what's what's your takeaway? Well, certainly optimistic. Whether it's overly optimistic is questionable. There are a couple of things that are holdouts. You know, people will cite the AAI survey or something like that that has no weight with me, but the thing that I'm I'm really confused about is fund flows. When you look at the the flow of funds into equities or out of equities, we're not seeing really even optimism. And that's that's it doesn't fit with almost everything else that I'm looking at. And I don't know the reason. I don't have an ex- explanation for it. It's just one of those exceptions that's a big exception to me. So I would classify it as optimistic. Typically, when you've got levels like this, returns going forward are subpar. The thing going for equities is momentum. And so I've done a ton of momentum studies over the past couple of months, really. And they're ex- extremely consistent in that when we see the type of momentum that we've seen in recent uh, weeks and months, it's very rare to see a big decline going forward. It's a little less consistent in the short and medium term, but longer term, six, out, six months to a year, it's really rare to see even a, a minimal decline. So you've got kind of a, a battle there between extreme sentiment and extreme momentum. Typically, shorter term sentiment will win out, so you'll see subpar returns. Longer term momentum will, will win out. So acute, I would say, some kind of a decline that wears off this excessive optimism but then another you know, rally that uh, satisfies some of these momentum studies. So summary is more, more tr- Trump tweets to come. All right, what about two other favorites of the AAI crowd? Bonds and gold, anything uh, going on there? No, I would say meh for both. Bonds, we had seen a lot of really built up pessimism early this year, February, March, and then that returned to optimism in, in August. Since then, it's just kind of been wearing off. Gold just has not been doing much. The price has moved, but sentiment has been kind of stuck in neutral. And, you know, when sentiment is stuck in neutral, there's just not a lot of information there. So uh, just not much of an opinion on either one. All right. Next. Are there any asset classes experiencing kind of extremes? You know, I I know um, there's been some in the past few years that have gotten whacked like energy did. Anything that comes to mind? Yeah, energy was one of those... uh, one of those setups you don't see very often where everything came together. Uh, this was in early 2016. Metals and mining, that was another sector that just uh, was kind of a, uh, everything was coming together. I think we're seeing something very similar right now in commodities. And commodities is a, is a broad group. And it's hard to just say, well, commodities, there's, they move, there's not necessarily a whole lot of correlation there um, among them. So but you look at some of the soft contracts like cocoa and coffee and, and especially the grains. And the kinds of sentiment readings we're seeing now are similar to what we were seeing in metals and mining and, and energy in early 2016. So if there's one asset class that I'm excited about from a longer term point of view, uh, something that an, an investor would probably be interested in, it's, it's that. It's the kind of the soft commodity complex. And that's not really easy to take advantage of. You know, there are funds like DBA that are geared specifically towards that, but then you're dealing with, you know, futures role and some of these other issues. Double Line has a good commodity fund, uh, but that's not really geared towards that. It's it's it has some other features to it. A lot of people like to invest in the companies instead of commodi- commodities themselves. But then you look at commodity stocks and they've already run up, so it's kind of a, a hard place to be. But you know, if I had to pick one, it would be a, a fund like DBA that's more geared towards the actual contracts of of some of these softer commodities. You know, it's funny. For being someone who's been going to a lot of these conferences in both retail and institutional for the past 20 years, you see a lot of themes. And certainly in the mid-2000s, 
commodities was like the headline panel on every single conference where inst- institutions all of a sudden were waking up to commodities. Oil was at 100, 120 bucks a barrel. And, you know, a, a couple of very influential commodity papers started coming out in the mid 2000s. And everyone, of course, rushed into commodities. And of course, what happened? Commodities have since done very, very poorly. And then you've seen the opposite in the last handful of years. You never see commodities as a topic on any of these conferences. And they're kind of universally hated. And a lot of institutions are selling their commodity positions. And, you know, it's, it's just it's so funny to see this sort of rinse, repeat sort of environment. But yeah, it, I think to me, also, anytime you have an asset class that's down multiple years in a row is usually a time that, that it starts to get sort of interesting. I and mean, a lot of the historical studies show that, that it's usually a, time, a great time to be building a position as well and, and starting to see a lot, of, a lot of negative sentiment there. But you're starting to, it's perking up in a few areas. Base metals have had a great year this year. And it, but, but it's funny, you know, I think a lot about the... One of my buddies, Steve Sugaru, talks about you know collectibles and investing and thinking about what the next generation may really care about. And gold and precious metals to me is an interesting one because, at least in the U.S., I don't see the younger generation really caring at all. But I also don't know that the price is determined globally that that's really the use case if it's not totally determined by China and India at this point. Anyway, that was a long ramble. It wasn't even a question. <laughs> that was that was my, my favorite investment cartoon is uh, one of these black and white cartoons. And, and the guy finishes speech says, we'd now like to open up the floor to questions designed as, or sorry, is short speeches designed as questions. So my, my question didn't even, wasn't even a question. It was more of just a statement. Random. Okay. <laughs> so talk to me. One of your other great tweets, one of your most popular tweets was you overlaid the number of internet funds with the number of crypto funds launching on two different time series. So one was the late 90s, obviously, with internet funds, and now with crypto. What are your thoughts on that space? Is that an area that is seeing kind of crazy sentiment? Is it hard to measure? What, what's, what's going on there? It's extremely hard to measure. So, I mean, we're, we're in early days with that, even though it's been around for a few years. We're just, we're not seeing the kind of data around it. Even though it's, you know, which is weird, you would think there'd be more data, but there's there's less than there is on, on most other markets. So, getting actual sentiment data or positioning data is is really difficult for that. It's something I'm I'm always looking at and just not having a lot of a success right now. But if you just look at some of the anecdotal stuff, you know, the number of fund openings it tracks very closely to the late '90s. You look at the name changes some of these companies are going through, and then their stock takes off. Well, that's very reminiscent of anybody that lived through that 1999-2000 time period. We saw the exact same thing. You look at what Overstock yesterday announced some initial coin offering. So a lot of these companies that are outside of the space trying to take advantage of it, and people are bidding up their stock to crazy levels, that never ends well. I, I can't think of one time where that did not indicate some level of froth. And just, you know, do you look at the blank check companies, just, just people throwing money at these companies, assuming that they're going to do something in the blockchain space with, with, those, with those funds? It's all tracking very similar to what we saw in the late 90s with internet stocks, and it's probably going to end the same way. I mean, I, I have no inside knowledge of blockchain. These guys are much smarter than I am. I think the underlying technology, much like the internet, is going to last. It's going to be potentially even revolutionary. 
most of the stocks are going to be worthless. Most of the claims are going to be worthless. So you're saying that the, you shouldn't be following Paris Hilton and Mayweather and who's the other <laughs> actor that came out? I can't remember. Oh, no, I'm promoting Probably the Probably not your best bet. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, shoot. It's interesting because that space, it reminds me of in the mid-2000s, there was a huge interest in SPACs, special purpose acquisition company, where these blank check companies would raise $100 million, billion dollars, and then just go find someone to buy. It's, it's such a strange you know, structure where people would invest in this management team that didn't even have a company yet, and they'd go out and find someone to buy. That has kind of gone away. You don't hear about SPACs hardly at all anymore. I guess they've, they've taken their place uh, with I- ICOs. All right. So talk to me. I want to I hear about a little going back in time, a couple examples where you may just uh, have some fond or really terrible dark memories. What, what sort of historical sentiment indicators do you look back on at a point in time and say, wow, that was just really a perfect setup or example where maybe one indicator or a whole slew were firing and, you know, it ended up being like a really, a really good call. Are there any particular examples that you, you think are great examples of sentiment just working fantastic? Yeah, I think last February, so 2016, that was almost perfect. I mean, it wasn't that much of a correction. You know, Ned Davis and some of the other firms will call it a bear market. And that's probably accurate because if you look at the median decline of most stocks, they were down 20% or more. So, you know, even though... The I think the S&P here, got to like 19 and a half or something. Right. <laughs> Which is so stupid to say, well, we weren't in a bear market. I, it just being so inflexible like that, I, I just think is, is not a good way to go. So assuming it was a bear market, we saw a lot of indicators that were just panic ridden and they pretty much nailed the low that time. So, you know, sometimes it just, it works perfectly. Sometimes even like at the bottom of 2009, a lot of the stuff had lined up. A lot of the stuff was showing extreme, okay, this is the end of a bear market kind of stuff. And then you saw something like put call ratios, which are very widely followed, and they were extreme optimism. So, you know, again, it, you kind of have to take a mosaic approach because if you only follow put call ratios, you would say, well, clearly people are way too optimistic and we're not at the end of a bear market. But markets change and, you know, maybe people were using some kind of a stock replacement strategy and, and bank call options instead of, you know, holding the capital in stock. So there's always exceptions. So I would say that's that's probably one of the most stark examples of not relying on a single indicator. Otherwise, you would have missed a, a huge opportunity. In 2016, then you've got something where I, you know, I'm sure I could find an exception, but almost everything was lined up at that point saying, okay, this is this is probably a really good buying opportunity. That's interesting. The um, you know, it's it's funny thing about sentiment because when it lines up, it's usually re- it's exact opposite of what people want to do. And the ex- the example I give is over the past five years, we've been giving kind of speeches around the world on valuation and stock markets, and have had sort of the same message where we say, look, the, the U.S. is expensive and getting more expensive. That's usually pretty unpopular in the U.S., but no one cares. And then I say the rest of the world is much cheaper, and a lot of these countries are really cheap. And I'd been giving the talks in a lot of countries where they were expensive. And so finally, I'd given some talks a couple summers ago in Eastern Europe and areas that were really, really cheap. And I was so excited because I said, finally, I'm going to have a popular talk and the room's going to love me. But I went and gave the talk and it was just silence. you know. And I said, hey, look, you have this really cheap stock market. It's, it should do double digits aren't you excited? You know, and everyone was just, they didn't care because they'd already experienced the loss. And so when you're down 40, 60, 
it's kind of a no duh. Like obviously this is probably cheap and nobody has any money to be doing anything. And on the flip side, you know, like in the US, if you think about the mid 2000s real estate or the late 2000s or 90s with with internet stocks is that you know, no one wants to sell at that point. They're like, what are you talking about? I'm buying my fourth house to flip. I, I can't sell now. This is when I'm going to make all the big money. So it's it's a, it's an interesting, you know, challenge for a lot of people when the sentiment lines up to actually pull the trigger and follow through with it, I think. But that's that's what makes it probably so worthwhile. Sold your house in 2005, and then your buddy just bought a boat because his, you know, home equity went up another $100,000 in 2007. You're going to feel like an idiot. And that's really painful. And if you buy too early when everybody else is panicking and saying, oh, you can't buy, you can't buy, again, you're going to feel like an idiot. That's really hard. And it takes, a, it takes kind of an iron constitution to be able to wade in on either side and, and go against the crowd. And it doesn't always work out. Sometimes your buddy is right. Maybe we're seeing that right now with, with Bitcoin and some of these other things that are taking off. And you know, some, some of us from the cheap seats are just kind of giggling. And maybe they're the smart ones. But Historically, probability-wise, you know, probably not. And you know, all we can do is play with probabilities. And, and historically, buying investments that don't have any cash flows has not been a great trade. It's funny, you'll see the Bitcoin on Twitter where people will go find these people, these poor souls who will tweet something like, Man, I, I should never have sold my Bitcoin at thirty bucks. Now it's at a hundred, you know, four or five years ago, and now it's at five thousand. Yeah. They'll retweet them and, right. and these poor talk about the FOMO that that generates where a lot of people are like, I can't sell my Bitcoin now. It just hit 5,000. What if it goes to 10 or 20 or 50 or a million, you know, and that's, that's the sort of behavior you see. But, but again, like that's what, what bubbles are. People make a ton of money in the final state, final stages of bubbles and whether Bitcoin ends up at 50,000 or 500 or zero, you know, who knows? I, I, I'm, I'm like you, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm sitting in the, in the cheap seats eating popcorn and, and enjoying watching it, but not something I, I, t- I t- really want to participate in. Okay. So are there any asset classes or sentiment readings that you think are particularly interesting that I'm leaving out? Is there anything that we have? And we've done a pretty wide global coverage. Is there anything that's on your mind or that you're working on that you think is particularly notable? Yeah. I mean, it's, most people are interested in, in, well, stocks, number one, bonds, number two, and gold, probably a close number three. And, and like I said, those latter two, they're just, I, I don't really see anything interesting there. Stocks are interesting, but conflicting. And like I said, you know, commodities probably is the most interesting one from either perspective, but particularly a long perspective. I just, I think that's where opportunity on a risk reward basis is, is probably the highest. Within stocks, Again, there's just there's a lot of just mixed readings or neutral readings among countries. You look at Qatar. If you take a, like a 50-day average of an optimism index that we calculate, that's really low. It's probably the lowest it's been in four or five years, and we, we don't see that very often with with countries. So some of these mid-east countries are are getting pretty um, pretty oversold in terms of excessive pessimism. But other than that, there's just a lot of it's just really mixed. I mean, the, the way that we think about U.S. stocks that I've been talking about, I say, look, you know, this really great long bull market and, you know, people kind of realize that stocks are probably expensive, but they just don't know what else to do. So they end up having kind of the, going back to the old do what you say, do what you do what you actually do. If you look at the percentage of household net worth in stocks, I think it's the second highest it's ever been. And usually that alone is also a pretty good indicator of future returns. But 
but I think it's a scenario of, of they just don't know what to do. And so it's like an uncomfortable long. And so it'll be interesting to see, you know, when markets start to decline, how that sentiment changes from being kind of regrettably long and invested where they don't really want to be long, but they don't know what else to do when it starts to decline. Who knows? Every, every bull and bear has a different personality. So it'll be, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Well, you just had a great paper about using CAPE uh, as, a, as kind of a timing mechanism. And even if you got out in the early 90s when CAPE was really high, you could have done well by switching into some of the, the lower valley countries. And with, with so many opportunities now, more than we've ever had before, investing within the U.S. market, outside of the U.S. market, people have never had so many options, which you know can be bad because you get kind of a paralysis, a paralysis by analysis situation. But there are other opportunities. You don't have to be invested in the S&P 500 spider. There are thousands and thousands of other opportunities, and not all of them are really expensive. And that's the, that's the hard part. We often say it's, it's tough to be asset class agnostic, you know, because it's, it's familiar and warm and fuzzy to be investing in the, the FANG stocks or everything in the US. But, you know, really, the, the world is your oyster. At least that's what we say. So listeners start to look into to Qatar and the ags and everything else on the on the menu of investment choices. Um, look, so I, I would love to hold you for a long time. A couple more short questions, and then we're going to have to let you go. Is do fundamentals ever play uh, a role in sort of your analysis when you're thinking about sentiment? Is it something that if they do, do you look for agreement or disagreement or anything else? Or is it something you kind of mainly ignore? I do look at them personally. I don't really discuss it very much. Uh, I think people can get much better information elsewhere. So it's something I think about. It's something I consider. But everything, you know, if you're looking for a comprehensive investment outlook, I think you need to tie it all together. I think the fundamentals are important. I think the technicals are important. And I think the emotional side, the sentiment side is important. So, you know, like our mutual friend, Steve Chigurud, he looks for something that's cheap hated and in an uptrend. So when you kind of fuse all of them together, I think your, your odds are, mu- are much better. So it's not something I really discuss much. It's important. I mean, of, of course, the fundamentals can be important, but a lot of this stuff goes together as well. You know, if you're seeing excessive pessimism, well, it's because the fundamentals are poor and valuation is probably low. So, you know, when, when you look at one aspect, it ties into the other aspects as well. So typically they confirm each other, but it's hard to time when fundamentals are, you know, at a, their worst point or their best point. And that's where sentiment and, and to some extent technicals can help you with that part of it. Tell me, this is a question we always ask podcast guests and is thinking back to your own personal history. Do you have a most memorable investment or trade and it can be positive it can be negative it can be whatever it may be but when you think about kind of your lifetime and investing is there one that particularly stands out many i will i will give you my worst because it's you know the pain is is actually still raw even though it's been for uh, three years actually so this was i think it was june of 2014 we were having one of those times where everything was lining up everything was pointing to stocks were probably peaking not a, not a bull market peak, but just there should be a, a correction looming. And I literally mean everything. Every single thing I looked at, every kind of analysis I do was saying we should have at least a 3 to 5% correction. So like an idiot, I violated all of my rules. I bought the worst thing you can possibly buy, which is a volatility ETF. 
I know all of the caveats about those. I know the weaknesses, but I was completely convinced that we were going to see an uptick in volatility imminently. And I was completely wrong. So this was, I think this was in June and the market kept ticking higher. Volatility kept ticking lower to where it was getting to historic levels. And so I think I, I think I managed through mid-July and ended up losing 22% of the trading account that I was using for this. Uh, and soon after that, of course, you know, the market actually did have its volatility event and, and I would have uh, made out well. But at, at some point, you have to reach a pain tolerance and, and, and get out. So, you know, the, the lessons from that are, well, there were many, um, but I violated everything, all of my trading rules. I let the loss get way out of hand. I used an inappropriate product. I became somewhat emotional. Not really. I mean, I, I think if you look back at some of the stuff I written, I think it would probably be hard to tell that I was actually suffering a, a pretty big loss in that trading account. But yeah, that's that really sticks out as something to never do again. I, I'm laughing not because of your story, but Jeff is over here shaking. My co-host is shaking his head, and I, I think he was I think he was with you in that same trade. So yeah, <laughs> it looks painful on his face as well. I don't remember if we asked you this question or not. If I did, I apologize. Do you have a single favorite sentiment indicator? Like a, your own pet personal indicator, if you had to just pick one? Yeah, ironically, it's it's one of the indicators that got me into that trade. Uh, it's the, the VIX term structure. So oh, yeah. just looking okay. at the difference in yeah the various VIX futures contracts. And uh, that was one of those times. It had basically a perfect record up to that point. So when it got to that level, volatility always jumped immediately. And so that's one of the reasons I had, had gone so heavy into this trade. And, you know, it teaches you humility. The market will teach you humility over and over and over again. I wonder what the, what's, the, what's the lowest VIX you think we could print? Yeah, I mean, I think we're already down to a, a nine-ish and change. Is, it, is, it, is eight even a possibility? Uh, is that something that, I mean, we're in a world of negative sovereign bond yields, so who knows anything's possible? Yeah, if you would have told me a month ago that in October the VIX would be you know, in the low nines, I would say no, never. Yeah. Uh, so never say never because, yeah. and especially now with so many products tied to the VIX, who knows, you know, it, it could be, it could be screwy and we'll see readings that we'll, we've never seen before. Maybe it can go up to 200 because some of these, you know, products are, are focused so tightly on this, this one niche. And we're going to see readings that we've never seen before. Well, good. I, we have a we have a tail risk fund, so I'm uh, <laughs> we're 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 betting on it to some degree. Smart move, <laughs> Jason. It's been a blast. Where can people go to find you if they want more information on your work, what you're up to, what you're tweeting about? What's the best sources? Yeah, just sentimenttrader.com. Uh, there's a blog on there with some free stuff, or just uh, Twitter at sentimenttrader. Jason, thanks so much. It's been a blast. Thanks, Matt. Listeners, we're going to post all these show notes, links to Jason's site, maybe some charts, all the stuff we talked about today, because there is a lot. And uh, we'll post it up online. Thanks for taking the time to listen, everybody. We always welcome feedback and questions and snacks and anything else you want to send us for the mailbag at feedback at show.com. You can always find the show notes, other episodes, mebfavor.com forward slash podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes. If you're enjoying the show, hating it, whatever, please leave a review. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. 